We spoke um, the other morning in introducing this question, what is this, of the, uh, the sixth patriarch of the Chan or Zen school called Huineng. There's a passage in the text that is most uh, closely associated with him, uh, the Platform Sutra, where he's asked the question, or he rhetorically asks it to himself, what is sitting meditation? One might expect him to say something about posture or something about the body or something about the technique of meditation. But he says, sitting meditation, or zazen, is where the mind has nowhere to rest. Where the mind has nowhere to rest, or to settle. And this evening I'd like to um, explore what that might mean. After all, we are doing sitting meditation. Arguably, for some of you, a little bit too much sitting meditation. How does that connect with this idea of it being a place where the mind has nowhere to settle? To put it into context of uh, Hui Neng's own life, the first thing we, we learn about Hui Neng is that as a young boy, he was born into a poor family of peasants in South China. And one of the uh, jobs that he did as a child was to help his grandmother go into the woods and collect firewood, twigs and branches, whatever had fallen. And one day, as they came back to the village, laden with firewood, they passed a monk who was sitting by the side of the road and was reciting um, a Buddhist uh, sutra, in this case, it was the, the Heart Sutra. No, sorry, not the Heart Sutra. The Diamond Sutra, which is a very well-known text, much revered in, in Zen Buddhism. And as Huineng and his granny walked by the monk, their passage coincided with the monk um, reciting the words where the mind has nowhere to rest. And on hearing these words, Huineng suddenly understood something, had some sort of epiphany, satori, breakthrough, understanding. Obviously, he was a very precocious wood collector. <laughs> and it seems to the extent to which this story can be um, literally believed, that that was the moment that turned his, his life from one of probably getting prepared to be a farmer in his village towards higher things. And it's striking, I feel, that many, many years later, when he comes to be a great teacher of meditation in South China, that when he comes to the practice of zazen, sitting meditation, we find him repeating this same phrase. It clearly was something very central to his understanding of what Buddhism is all about. We may also remember in the exchange between Huineng and Huaijiang. Where have you come from? 
I've come from Mount Song. What is this thing? How did it get here? Huizhang is silent. Huizhang then goes and stays in the monastery for a further eight years and then has some understanding, comes back to Huineng and Huineng says, what is it? What is this? And Huizhang replies, to say it is something misses the point. To say it is something misses the point. It seems to me that this is again another riff on the idea of where the mind has nowhere to settle. To, to answer the question, what is this, in a conventional way, would be to make some sort of, of declaration. It is this or it is not this. You might expect, as a kind of uh, official, good, Buddhist answer to the question, what is this? Maybe something along the lines of Buddha nature. Everything is Buddha nature. In other words, an affirmation. It is this. On the other hand, you might expect something like, um, it is empty. It is emptiness. Again, a negation. But still, nonetheless, a declaration of, in this case, non-being, nothing, as opposed to being, or something. And this perhaps gives us a clue that in the state of this sort of radical questioning or astonishment, one opens oneself uh, to a way of, uh, of being present in the world, a kind of consciousness or awareness, in which you're no longer committed to things or nothings, to being or non-being, to this or not this. In other words, you refuse, as it were, to, to, to buy into, to succumb to the, the logic of conventional language. I mean, in, in the tech, tech, technical language of philosophy, um, this would refer to, to the, um, the law of the excluded middle. Something either is A, as Aristotle said, or it is not A. And there's no possibility of something that is neither A or not A, or however it goes. Now, this is a tradition that goes back to the Buddha himself. There's... Um, there's a passage or a text in the Samyutta Nikaya in which the Buddha finds himself in discussion with a man called uh, Mahakachana. It's sometimes called the Kachana Gota Sutta, the discourse given to, to Kachana. And the Buddha starts by saying, the world, the, the, the world depends on a duality, on two things. Either something exists or something doesn't exist. But, Kachana, to say that something is or something exists, that is a dead end. And to say that something doesn't exist, Kachana, that is another dead end. Without leaning to either of these dead ends, I teach the Dhamma by a middle way. Now this might sound very abstract. Um, I'll try to bring it down to earth. The way the Buddha explains that passage, he says, someone who understands how the world comes into being or comes about, arises, uh, 
such a person um, is freed from the idea that nothing exists. In other words, the emergence of things, and let's make this more concrete, the, the blossoming of a flower, or the birth of a child, or the appearance in the sky of a rainbow. The appearance of things, the coming into being, as it were, into appearance, once something appears, it's it's impossible then to say it it doesn't exist. But the nature of all things that appear is impermanent. And so whatever arises is something that passes. Whatever arises is something that stops or vanishes or disappears. And once you acknowledge that whatever arises is something that ceases or disappears or turns into something else, it's very difficult then to adhere to the idea of existence. Something really exists because it will inevitably fade away and disappear. I think all of this is an attempt to try to grasp with language the, uh, the, the processual nature of experience. And this is something that we are up against or encountering each time we sit. Take the breath, for example. The breath is drawn in, it pauses, it is breathed out. Uh, The heart, uh, you have the diastolic and the systolic, I never remember which is which. It it expands, it contracts, it comes, it goes. This constant, um, almost ruthless emphasis in the Buddha's teaching on transience, impermanence, change, is, I think, important because it's a gateway to a way of being. And again, I'm hesitant to use this word being, but such is language. In which everything, including ourselves, including our thoughts, including our feelings, are constantly in flow and flux. And anything that is in flow and in flux cannot really be pinned down and identified in a kind of final, permanent, definitive way as being this or not this. In other words, nature, the natural world, of which we are, of course, inextricably a part, slips through the grid of language. And language is um, uh, committed, uh, just in the very structure of grammar, to the the, the duality of things either being or not being. When we witness, for example, the song of the birds, or the cawing of the rooks, or the sound of a tractor in the distance, we can begin to pay attention to how it appears at some point, it abides for some duration, and it fades away. And I think the reason that this is encouraged. I mean, in Zen, there's not so much talk of impermanence and these things. But I feel that it's very much the same idea, is that we're trying to open our awareness uh, at a level of, uh, of, 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 of depth, of clarity, in which we um, no longer get caught up in 
is or is not, exists or doesn't exist. And this is what the Buddha means by the middle way. The middle way does not veer, as he says, to either of these anta, which I've translated as dead ends. Sometimes you hear of it translated as either of these extremes, a middle way between extremes. But the word anta um, doesn't really mean extreme. It means an end. And because the word anta um, is also associated with mara, or the demonic, it's sort of a dead end. It's a, it's a condition in which life somehow doesn't uh, really happen. Now, of course, when we turn this sort of inquiry into ourselves, into me, then the same kind of, of analysis is, um, is asked of us. We hear this famous expression in Buddhism about not-self. And again, this doesn't mean that there is no self. Although, unfortunately, that's often what we are told. But in fact, self cannot really be adequately understood in terms of it being, it, you know, I am, any more than it can be adequately understood in terms of I am not, there is no self, there is a self. There's another dialogue, which some of you might have, have heard, between the Buddha and a wandering ascetic called Vachagota. Vachagota comes to the Buddha and sits down beside him and says, um, Master Gautama, um, is there a self? And the Buddha remains silent. And so Vajagota, understandably, says, well, in that case, Master Gautama, there is no self. And the Buddha remains silent. At which Vajagota stands up and goes away. He's not getting a, a yes or no answer. It's a very simple question. It's either yes or no. It's either A or not A. But the Buddha remains silent. And then Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, turns to the Buddha and says, why didn't you say something? And the Buddha replies, well, look, if I'd said the self exists, then Vachagota would have fallen into the dead end of permanence. And if I'd said that the self doesn't exist, then Vachagota would have risked falling into the dead end of annihilation. <coughs> Sometimes translated nihilism, but not contemporary nihilism. In other words, the self, just like the blossom on the tree, just like the core of the rooks, is a process that everything that is a living organism is something that cannot be reduced to either being something or being nothing. In other words, when you start to see things this way, the mind has nowhere to rest. To say it is like something misses the point. And yet so much of our thinking, of our, let's say, our beliefs, our opinions, our views, are all predicated or based on the idea that this is true, that is false, this exists, this doesn't exist. There is a reality called God. No, there's not. There is no God. As soon as we're caught up in this kind of back and forth, this altercation, arguably, 
we're missing the point. That we're tricked, or as Wittgenstein said, bewitched by language to the point that we endlessly dispute about these things, whereas in fact, we're really just um, deceived by the notion something must be or not be. If we were to suspend that kind of thinking, that kind of language, we might have the possibility of opening ourselves to um, the, the arising and the passing, the flourishing of life itself. So although this might sound a little bit abstract, what the Buddha is trying to get at, what Huineng is trying to get at, is that because we are locked in at a quite sort of fundamental level uh, to this kind of dualism, we actually are, in a way, anesthetized or cut off, uh, blocked, from an encounter with the um, emerging and vanishing mystery of life itself. So when we're asking, what is this? We're training ourselves, as it were, not to slip into either of these dead ends but rather to suspend that kind of thinking, affirmation, denial, and open ourselves up to the sheer presencing of life itself, which can't be pinned down in this way. Now, we might have the idea that um, what I've been saying so far is a good sort of rather typical example of, of Buddhist or um, Eastern thought. But we find one thinker, one philosopher in ancient Greece um, who basically said the same thing. And this is Pyrrho, Pyrrho of Elis, who lived um, after the period of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, although he may have actually um, been alive um, in the latter years of Aristotle's life. He might even have studied with Aristotle at the academy, we don't know. But what's interesting about Pyrrho, who is now known basically as the founder of the school of philosophy called skepticism, this is where our word skeptic begins. This is about 400 BC. Pyrrho was one of the philosophers who accompanied Alexander to India. Alexander, in his conquests of the Persian Empire, uh, was not just, you know, into seizing power and wealth and expanding his realm, although, of course, that was a large part of it. But he also saw himself as, a, as, as bringing civilization, a certain Hellenic culture, and spreading that through the, the known world of his time. And he ends up in India, or he ends up in what is now Pakistan, in fact, where he famously meets um, gymnosophists, as the Greeks called them, naked sages. These were probably, they may have been Jain monks, they might have been Buddhist monks, they might have been simply just sadhus, samanas, mendicants, and the philosophers in Alexander's entourage, amongst whom we find Pyrrho, were very impressed by these men. 
and engaged in dialogues with them, spoke to them. And there are some records of what they said and what was learned. And it seems quite likely that Pyrrho was in fact influenced in his thinking and his teaching when he returned to Greece by the ideas of some of these uh, Indian thinkers. This is a passage um, that is quoted by Aristocles, who's a later figure. Pyrrho, a bit like the Buddha and Socrates, never actually wrote anything. Um, He was renowned as a recluse. Uh, And also, as was very much the case in in ancient Greece, um, as a sage, not just someone who had some brilliant theory, was good at argumentation, but someone who actually embodied and lived what he taught. This is a text that's attributed, uh, or at least regarded as a fairly good summary of Pyrrho's understanding. Pyrrho said that things are immeasurable and undecidable. You can't measure them. You can't really you know, pin them down in a decisive way. Therefore, neither are sensations, in other words, what we, the data we get through the senses, nor our judgments or opinions can tell us either truths or falsehoods. Therefore, we should, not, we should not put our trust in them at all. But we should be without judgment, without inclination one way or another. We should be unwavering, unshakable, in saying that each thing no more is than is not, or it both is and is not, or it neither is nor is not. Now this, in the light of what we've just been saying, of course, has very, very strong resonance. The Pyrrho, um, again, was very uh, suspicious and refused to make any kind of a statement, either affirming or denying whether something existed or did not exist. For Pyrrho, there was just what appears, nothing behind it. This is another way into this same thing. When we ask, what is this? There's a temptation, I suspect, to see this as a question that's trying to to pierce the veil of appearance, to get behind what is just apparent to some deeper or higher or truer truth, which we might call being or God or We might elevate it to something like true mind or something like that. Some absolute truth. And Buddhism too has slipped into that kind of thinking. But when we go back to the Buddha or to Nagarjuna or to Huineng, we find that there's a a refusal to make either an affirmation or a denial of any reality that somehow lies behind appearance. That what appears is not um, the appearance of something. Pyrrho or Timon, his successor, is reputed to have said, I do not dispute that honey tastes sweet, but I make no claim whatsoever as to whether sweetness is the nature of honey. 
that Pirro is a thinker who is committed just to appearance, to what appears. Again, if we go back to the Buddha, there's a, a sutta, a discourse in, in the Sangyutta Nikaya called the Sabha Sutta, the discourse on everything. Sabha means all. And the Buddha says, monks, I will teach you everything. I will teach you the all. And what is everything? The all. The eye and what it sees. The ear and what it hears. The nose and what it smells. The tongue and what it tastes. The body and what it senses. The mind, and then we don't really have a word in English, the mind and what it thinks, feels, intuits. That is the all. To claim that there is anything else, you go beyond what you can legitimately claim. Very similar idea. And yet, I think religion, philosophy, human beings in general, have a yearning for there to be something more. It can't just be this. There must be something else. Some great power, or mind, or intelligence, or some true self. Something behind these fluctuating, ephemeral appearances. But I think in for Piro, for the Buddha, for Hui Neng, this is it. What we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, feel. To posit anything else is, is, uh, is out of our range. It's often, I think, a longing for permanence and a longing for being, a longing for survival, in spite of a world that doesn't seem to allow permanence or some sort of eternal self or soul. And some people find that rather a bleak vision. I don't. But I think to actually um, embrace such a a vision requires that we have to seriously challenge many of our most cherished opinions, whether we've inherited them from our religions or we've arrived at them philosophically or, I think in many respects, we have a kind of existential or psychological um, yearning for there to be something else. One of the key phrases of, of Pyrrho is to malon in Greek, which means no more. There's nothing more. And it's extraordinarily difficult to actually embrace completely the, um, the world of appearance with nothing behind, nothing beyond. Let's go back to Zen. This is um, one of the koans. Um, it's in the Gateless Gate, and it concerns uh, the monk Bodhidharma, who is rather a shadowy figure, but he probably existed and would have been in China around the middle of the 6th century AD. And it's said, as I already mentioned, that he, he lived on Mount Song, which is where Huai Zhang came from to go see Hui Neng. And the story goes that Bodhidharma spent nine years um, meditating in a cave, doing a practice called wall gazing. And that's actually the basis for the 
tradition in Zen monasteries today that when you meditate, you sit facing the wall. Now, when he was up in this cave, uh, one winter, um, a disciple of his called Hue Ko came to see him. And so you have this image of this Chinese monk walking through the snow on the top of Mount Song. I've actually seen this place. It's, um, yeah, it's not that high, really. It's not. Don't, don't think Himalaya. It's a big hill. Anyway, Bodhidharma's in his cave. Uh, Hueko walks through the snow, stands at the entrance to the cave, and to demonstrate his, his seriousness and his resolve, he cuts off his left arm. Now, again, I think that's probably not true. <laughs> but um, that's the story that goes. And there's, in fact, it's quite a, um, a well-known iconographic motif in Chinese Buddhist art. Hueco standing in the snow, holding his, his forearm, which is dripping blood. It's symbolic. It, it, it's a way of expressing this, um, you know, the, the desperate state that this man was in. And he calls out to Bodhidharma, and he says, Master, Master, ha- please show me the way to set my mind at rest. And Bodhidharma replies, okay, um, show me your mind and I'll put it to rest for you. <laughs> so Bodhidharma, uh, Hueco, um, arm in hand, <laughs> wanders off back to the monastery, or wherever he came from, or maybe it was the cave across the way. And after some unspecified period of time, comes back to Bodhidharma and says, I've searched for my mind, but I can't find anything. And Bodhidharma says, See, I've put it to rest for you. (coughs) Now, here again, I think we touch on exactly the same non-point that when one looks for something let's say the mind or the self or whatever you embark on an inquiry that leads you to some to to, to the realization that you cannot actually find what it is that you're inquiring about because the more you, you look, particularly in meditation, the more you, 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 you look for yourself, let's say. You know, who is Stephen? Where is Stephen? You know, eyes closed, mind burrowing inside my soul. The weird thing is, the more you, you pursue this quest the more you get the funny feeling that it might go on forever. It's a little bit like the, the, um, the physicists inquiring into the ultimate nature of matter. I mean, this has been a story that we've probably all followed through most of our lives. And we might also have noticed that as soon as they come up with some candidate as the ultimate particle of matter, the next thing you know is that it turns out not to be quite as ultimate as they thought. You started with atoms, and then you find the atoms actually are made up of electrons and protons and neutrons. You look at the electrons, protons, neutrons, you start discovering that they too are composed of leptrons, quarks, whatever they're called. And so you get, now it's the Higgs boson particle that everybody's looking for. 
with their particle accelerators. And there are people now who figure actually there's another um, level of ultimacy altogether, which is, 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 is postulated in terms of, of vibrating strings, string theory. But unfortunately, to test that theory empirically, you'd have to build a particle accelerator about the size of Texas. And our governments have more important things to do, it appears. But I have the funny feeling, and again, this might turn out to be, of course, delusive, that this might go on for a long time, if not forever. And this, of course, is a... um, uh, an insight that we find in in Buddhist philosophy in Buddhist practice, um, and the term that's used to describe it is emptiness. Again, this is a term that's much used and much misunderstood. Again, we tend to think that emptiness is something, some kind of cosmic void or something out of which things arise and pass away into. But in fact, in Madhyamaka philosophy, emptiness is understood as the ultimate unfindability of things. In other words, emptiness is pointing to a sort of infinity that um, what we open up to in meditation, and I would say what we're doing with this question, what is this, is actually a kind of ultimate inquiry that very likely will arrive neither at something nor will it arrive at nothing, neither at being or non-being. It's this middle way again, avoiding the dead end of it is and avoiding the other dead end of it is not. And if we translate that into a more more concrete language, we're talking about um, shedding those uh, positions and opinions and views and attachments that occlude or uh, prevent us from tapping into the infinity of life itself. The endlessness, the boundlessness, the immeasurableness, as Pirro calls it, the undecidableness of things. And therein lies a certain freedom. And therein lies a place, well, a non place, where the mind has nowhere to rest. The mind will never come to a stop. That doesn't mean that it dissolves into nothingness, but it opens up to in a way, the, the, the mystery of things, the strangeness of things, the, the ineffability of things. So when we ask this question, what is this? We find ourselves in a frame of mind in which we're neither affirming or denying anything. And this, I think, is a given in the very uh, nature of questioning itself. If we say, who am I? Or what is this? In that very act, we are acknowledging that we do not know. But we're also suspending any belief we might have that I exist or I don't exist, we're just saying, I don't know. The practice of 
this question is actually the practice of emptiness. Putting that word in scare quotes. Or the practice of being open to the possibility of the unfindability of anything. But not as a, a logical or as a philosophical position, but rather as a kind of living uh, relationship or sensibility or openness to the fact that something is happening at all. So that's all I'm going to say today. I hope that's practical enough to be of help in the meditation. Does anyone have a question or a comment? Yes. Um, what I'm a bit confused about is um, we don't know what we don't know and when, when you talk about kind of what we see is what we get in a way but there's um, nothing behind um, the processes that are apparent to us. I'm wondering about the limitations of being a human being. So, you know, just this, for example, like we can't see infrared or ultraviolet. Mm. So, we only have a certain view <coughs> on the world. Yes. And I, we, can't, we can't step out of our human limitations to see if there's anything else. <laughs> the, the whole exercise is, is impossible. Uh, to the point where um, it's really pointless, I think, to speculate. Because part of what we can't step out of is the very, um, the very apparatus of what it is that's doing the inquiry. Language, thought, experience. And yet we have this funny yearning for there to be something else. And um, it's not as though, of course, we cannot... I mean, take the example of the analysis of, of matter. You know, if we, if we push our inquiry into the nature of our experience, we may well indeed encounter another um, uh, experience that's quite unfamiliar to us. But that too is just another appearance. It's not, as it were, the end of the road. The chances are that that appearance too can be questioned. It seems to me that, and again, this is an opinion, um, I can't envisage a time where human beings would have got to a point where they have no more questions, that they can have an experience that's not questionable. It seems to me that wherever you advance whether it be in science or in, in culture, um, that you, you resolve certain conundra, certain you know, confusions, and you're tempted to give a finality to that conclusion. Oh, this is the answer. But the whole history of thought, the whole history of science, shows us that every answer is, in a sense, provisional and simply re-jigs our sense of the world in such a way that we quest in such a way that it gives rise to another set of questions what what's that then when we get to the atom and then the quark and whatever and i suspect that it's very similar when we inquire um, in meditation. Yes, we'll have breakthroughs, insights, maybe sh experiences that completely shatter everything we'd thought before. I'm not denying that. But I suspect that whatever we arrive at will just give us another starting point to question afresh. And in that sense, I feel there's a kind of endlessness to this 
And I don't see that endlessness as disappointing. In fact, I would rather, I would find it a very bleak outlook if we actually could get to the point where science is finished, uh, philosophy, where we've sorted all that out. I mean, Bertrand Russell wrote in the 1920s, I mean, very arrogantly, he said, within 40 years, science will have solved all of the current problems that it has. End of story. Philosophy too. They really figured, you know, in that age, in the Edwardian age, uh, with the arrogance of, 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 of that particular culture, that a final conclusions would be reached in philosophy and in science in which there would be nothing further to know. Now, nowadays, we look at that and think, well, how, how could you be so stupid? Because in all these fields, um, that's been quite clearly shown to not be the case. If anything, the world that's been opened up in the sciences particularly is more mysterious. It presents us with a sense of the universe that is more mind-boggling and mind-stopping and infinite and ungraspable than it was at the time of Russell in the, in the 20s. And that I find very thrilling, frankly. I find that's very alive. Uh, it's very... Um, um, yes, it's, 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 it's exciting, I feel. But... but. There's always a but, you see. There's always a but. Things do exist for us in time. It's not a permanent but. I mean, the bus that runs us, or, or the sickness, or the job we are losing. I mean, we have to deal with these things in time. And so they have an existence, if not a permanent, but they are. And we have to deal with them. So mm-hmm. these, these kind of thinking, how can they help with that? That, that's a very no, that's a very good question, Stefan. And in fact, that was the point on which I had planned to end the talk. In other words, okay, let's assume that's true. All of this stuff about infinity and endlessness and so on. What does that? How does that help? Or what does that have to say to how I deal with? You know the particularities of my day-to-day existence. How do I deal with my family? How do I deal with my, um, you know, my wife, work, other people, climate change? What's all this got to do with that? But that's the point I'd like to pick up in the next talk. <laughs> yes. I think it's too simplistic. Um, you see, I, I think the the um, the term that is uh, questionable here is this, uh, you know, the truth of it. Well, why do you assume that that there is a truth of it, or could it be that the tr- the closest we can say to the truth of it is that it's unfindable? Well, that's... You don't think so. Well... I think you find bits of it in different places. <laughs> okay. Um, I have difficulty with this word truth, to be honest. I mean, on a, on a 
simple level, yes. It's true that London is the capital of England. It's true that I was born in Dundee. It's true that you know, there's lot, lots of stuff we can call true. But it's all fairly, um, fairly relative to our particular experience. Whether there is truth with a capital T, I'm not so sure. But again, look. Yes, au fond. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. But you see, the, um, the something that the Buddha understood, again, your something is a bit like the other lady's truth. It's, it's, it's a seductive uh, idea that, yeah, the Buddha awoke to something. Well, if we, the passages I cited from the Buddha's own teaching suggests that there wasn't anything that he found. That there was not, neither something that either was, is, or is not. There's no something. He found a middle way between something and nothing. This is what he says himself. He describes his awakening um, in one of the, you know, the core canonical texts as an awakening to... What, what, what he calls conditioned arising, which again is a rather clumsy way of talking about the processual nature of life itself, not some ultimate reality, not some unconditioned um, being. Sorry, if. Because what, um, as a Buddhist, I don't uh, feel that what the Buddha taught was something that I simply believe or have faith in. But what the Buddha taught I see as um, actually um, a suggestion, a recommendation, an injunction to do something. What he taught was a practice a set of exercises like the one we're doing here that that's what he taught not he didn't he didn't didn't say believe this he said try this see where it takes you in the context of your own life and i think the any tradition buddhist or otherwise is only a living tradition if we are in a constant ongoing conversation with with our own, with the past of that tradition, with, with, with what's been said. It's not a dead thing. It's not a fixed final statement. It's a challenge, really. It's a provocation for us to ask and explore and, 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 and meditate, if you wish. Now, why we are doing this practice, I suspect there are as many reasons as there are people in the room all that these uh, talks provide are a kind of a kind of a, a framework of ideas that might help us pursue this inquiry in our own lives. But um, for me, Buddhism is not a belief system. I don't sign up to being a Buddhist because I believe X, Y, and Z. <coughs> But for me, it's always um, a praxis. It's something to do. It's not something to believe. It's something to check out for yourself. If it's helpful, fine. If you don't find it helpful, 
fine. Well, we've got one minute and two questions. That's tricky. It's nearly 8.30. Um, yeah? Did you know that Piero was... Piero. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Which I'm not going to suggest to use a urinals as a symbol to which to bow to the But the question remains sometimes to why the serious religiosity of the matrix in Buddhism and why things haven't changed or been and isn't part of the practice to have to question the very matrix of mm -hmm. and for instance what you were saying the other day just a note on this could we consider Zen scripture so called as, uh, as literature mm -hmm. as rather good literature rather than scripture yeah. I'm aware of the time register um, I'm very interested to learn that um, Marcel Duchamp was into Piro. It kind of fits. And I agree. My first thought was, well, now we'll put a urinal instead of the Buddha. But um, I tend to see Zen, Zen texts, Buddhist texts, Pali canon, I find more effective as literature than as, as, as scripture. And what I find odd, particularly with regard to Buddhism, is how, despite all of these things that it teaches, it seems to behave in a way that actually contradicts the very fundamental premise. Everything is impermanent, everything's unsatisfactory, everything's contingent, except Buddhism, and particularly my version of it. In other words, anything that achieves a kind of status within a culture or a society that raises it to the level of an authority about ultimate things tends to get rigidified and crystallized as an ultimate thing itself. And Zen, I think, is uh, one of the most interesting movements in Buddhism precisely because it launches a critique at its own tradition. It undermines itself, or at least it tries to. But of course, if you look at Zen institutions in Asia today, they're as much trapped in their own sense of being right and being better than the others, and etc., etc. So somehow, I. Hmm? As in the West. As in the West, too. In fact, in the, it's quite remarkable how in 40 years, 50 years, um, Buddhism in the West has basically devolved into a set of institutions, all of which claim some sort of certainty. In other words, they be it's become religion in, in the less interesting sense of the word. You had a point, if it's a quick one. It, uh, I'm not sure how quick it is. Um, it was really an exploration of, of, of something that you were, you were mm -hmm. saying, which is um, just to try and put a few points together. And one of the things is, is that language is, is a spectrum and, and some things are, are more true than, than others. Mm -hmm. Within that, uh, there's self and, and there's no self. And if this here is simply, as you are saying earlier, um, just appearance, just the sight and the sound... Uh, and other sense perceptions within that it would seem more accurate and more true to say that there is no self uh, as opposed to there being a self and I mean it, just mm -hmm. putting in other, other bits of, mm -hmm. of Buddhism as, as well and one of the things you chant in puja in, in that Theravada monasteries is there is no self in the conditioned and there is no self in the unconditioned um you do? Well, you see, um, it's difficult to get in. This is quite a, it's a good point, but it's a tricky one. I think the translation of anatta as no self is, is mistaken. 
I think it's wrong. And most scholars actually would agree now. That um, anatta, and I, I know this might sound like an academic distinction, uh, actually means not self, not no self. And in other words, not self is a, is a quality of things. It's not an affirmation of there being no self. It's anything within the body-mind complex, let's say, is not me. But that doesn't mean that I don't exist. That's a somewhat tricky point, but I think a rather important one. We'll come back to that, but we have to stop here, I'm afraid. Um, We have ten minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.